All right, here we go, everybody. Episode 12 coming at you today. I want you to stay focused. No daydreaming. I want you to be very present. I want you to be grounded today. I want you to center yourself. So before we even get started, how about taking a deep breath? In through your nose. Out through your mouth. This just became a guided meditation, which will probably be my next career. I've thought about this. Life is about many careers. Right now, high school teacher, loving it. My next career, guided meditation guy on YouTube, because I have been told that YouTubers make a lot of money. And isn't that what should drive us? Straight cash by uploading YouTube videos, how to do this, how to do that. Now, I would happily guide you through meditations because I've, I've listened to enough. So now I think like I have a grasp on it. Not quite an expert, but I feel like I could do it at least. I want you to breathe in and out. Check in with yourself. Do a body scan from the top of your head to the bottom of your toes. And don't feel bad if your mind wanders. The best guided meditations always tell you, don't feel bad if your mind wanders. I love that part. But there's some YouTubers who are actually making money with stupid stuff. How to make ice. Hi, I'm the Iceman76. Today's video, how to make ice. And if you go to YouTube and type in any how-to, how to assemble IKEA furniture, how to make homemade mayonnaise, there is somebody that has recorded a full instruction video for you, and they don't forget any steps. And it makes things almost too easy. We're not using our brains anymore. We're just going to YouTube, typing in how to do anything, how to make ice. First, get a tray. Plastic preferred, not obsidian, not a glass tray either. 16 slots for the water that is going to freeze and become ice. Then go to the tap, let the faucet stream into the spots that are made for ice, and then put it in the freezer until it solidifies. Then take it out and you're like, I know, what? But every YouTuber has to end it with, and if you liked what you saw today, please click like. Please click like. We are in the world of likes. Click like, clickbait, clickbait, clickbait. I was the victim of clickbait recently, or I don't even know if it's clickbait, but I realized I'm susceptible to pop-up ads or banner ads. I was just scrolling through a website, I forget what it was, and all of a sudden, this beautiful pair of Diodora running shoes pops up, and the price was beautiful. It was like 40 bucks. They were like light red, kind of pink and tan with a little navy blue, and I immediately clicked on it, and before I knew it, I was just in autopilot mode, taking out my credit card. Punching in the visa numbers, expiration date, and that little security code on the back. There's my address. Three days later, the shoes are on my doorstep, and they look good. Bought my wife a pair. I think I'm developing a little bit of an obsession with shoes. I think I will need my own closet one day just for my shoes, and it's an unhealthy obsession. You really only need a few pairs of shoes. I mean, really, if you whittle it down, you need shoes to work out in, probably shoes for your job. And then a pair of sandals for the summertime. But I'm reaching a point where I have just a bunch of unnecessary pairs of shoes. Because the damn pop-up ads. I'm vulnerable. I didn't realize I was. But I'm losing. Just like everybody, I'm losing out to the tech world that is taking over our lives. And I'll get to that a little later today. I certainly will. On today's Here We Go podcast, I'm going to touch on a couple of books. This will be a very literary-themed podcast. Uh, I'm going to get into... Maybe the fact that I'm a hypochondriac, and maybe the fact that I'm not. Who knows? We'll talk a little sports today as well. 
And I want to make a comparison about the Renaissance in Florence, Italy, to what's going on today in the Bay Area, in Silicon Valley. Just how it's going to be studied in history is interesting to think about. We're living it right now. You know, from that first Apple computer in 1976, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, to today, 2018, all the advancements, it's all going to be studied under the same umbrella. So I want to get to that a little later. And right out of the gates, I'll just tell you, if you want to leave a review on iTunes, please do. You can follow me on Twitter at jrosenberg957. All right, a few confessions today as well. And if you listen to this podcast because you say, hey, I like Oscar-worthy movies, but I don't ever see them on time, and I want somebody to review them in a way where they try to sound smart about their cinematic knowledge, that's what I'm looking for. Then I'm happy you found this podcast because I never see movies on time when they're in the theater. I always wait after the Academy Awards to see what was popular. And then I see what wins Best Picture. This year it was The Shape of Water. And then I record myself rambling about it. So that'll be how we start today. I saw The Shape of Water. This movie wins Best Picture. Best movie of the year, The Shape of Water. Couldn't get into it from the jump. And I tried because it insists upon itself, right? When you hear that a movie won Best Picture, you immediately say, this is going to be good. And of course it was good. You know, it was well done. They set the scene from 1950s or 1960s. So just the sets, the wardrobe, the costume design, all of that is great. The lighting was good. Can I mention lighting? Sally Hawkins, who plays a janitor at a facility. What is it? A CIA facility during the Cold War. Her acting was great. She's mute. Doesn't say a word the whole movie. So she's very good. I'm done with the compliments, though. I don't get it. This was a fish man an amphibious creature, a merman who's in a tank and Sally has to steal him to put in her bathtub so she can have sex with this amphibious creature for a while. What the fuck was happening in this movie? And I know some people say it's art. You don't understand. This is true. I like the condescending film critic who tells me I don't understand because I agree. I completely agree. I don't understand. But I also felt like there was nothing to cheer about throughout the movie. Great. She steals the amphibian to put in her bathtub and then she fills up the entire bathroom with water just by putting a towel down. You know, all of a sudden her bathroom fills up to become a tank, an aquarium for her and her lover, the fish man to swim in and turn it into a bit of an aquatic porno for a moment, which was okay. You know, that scene was fine. But then her goal is to put him in the river and he floats away. And then she all of a sudden has the magical power to live in the ocean or the sea with him. Because it's a godlike creature. I love how much I'm getting wrong. It's like a godlike creature. He has superhero powers. Okay, all I have to say is it's a D plus. And the villain who is supposed to be great, I heard he was great, this guy, Michael Shannon, who's the type of guy where you go, I know him from something, and it bugs you the entire movie. I know him from something. And then you look him up on IMDb and you realize, no, nah, I don't really know him. I thought he was awful. He's supposed to be this villain who you hate, but the whole time his acting was very stoic. Oh, I am so upset in this scene. And then in this next scene, I am also so upset. I didn't really understand his approach to his character. See, this is the part of the podcast where I pretend to understand your approach. For a method actor, I didn't understand his truth. But Sally Hawkins was great. She's adorable. She's cute. I saw her in the Woody Allen movie, Blue Jasmine. So she's always great. Uh, The amphibious creature, no clue. I have no clue what the appeal is. Really, are we supposed to cheer for him? Hope that he gets into the water? 
So this is not your classic love story, of course, but this is called sci-fi. And here's my point. I can't get into sci-fi, and I think something is wrong with me psychologically. Because all of these big blockbuster hits, every year there's a new big blockbuster hit, a sci-fi hit, where some people love special effects. And they know about the directors. Ooh, it's a Guillermo del Toro movie. Or ooh, it's a Steven Spielberg. Oh, this is going to be special. It's a Michael Bay. I can't get into any of these, and I'm not bragging about it. Quite the opposite. I'm sad about it. I wish I could enjoy a sci-fi movie, a superhero movie, a dystopian movie. I need my movies to just look like real life. Either dumb comedies will get me to the theater, or a good drama. But when it comes to special effects, or a story where I have to suspend disbelief, I can't do it. I wish I could. And I realized as a kid I couldn't do it because I never wanted to see Star Wars. To this day, I've never seen Star Wars. There's my confession. I know you probably thought it would be a more extreme confession. No. But I've never seen Star Wars, and I tried once. In the dorms in college, my roommate put in Star Wars, and I was pretending to enjoy the first 10 minutes before I fell asleep. I thought it was brutal. I just thought it was so boring. I know all of the characters. I mean, if you're alive in America and you know anything about pop culture, of course you know the characters. Luke Skywalker... C-3PO, R2-D2, Chewbacca. So I know all of the characters, but I don't get it. I don't get the appeal. And of course, I'm in the minority. Star Trek, never seen it. No thanks. Anything with Star. Battlestar Galactica, nope. Transformers, I wish I could get into it. Guardians of the Galaxy, Avatar. I'm just naming all these movies that I hear people line up for and get excited for, and I can't. Black Panther, I wish. There was a part of me that said, I want to see Black Panther, but I don't. So all of these sci-fi, dystopian, superhero, comic movies that bring big numbers to the box office, I will never enjoy. So I think something is wrong with me psychologically, and I want to explore that one day. Why do I need my movies to look like real life? Dull, normal love stories. Or stupid, shitty comedies. That's it. Or documentaries about things I already knew about. Speaking of documentaries, though, I saw Andre the Giant just like everybody. And I don't want to go on and on and on about it. Of course it was good. It was great. It was exactly what I expected. HBO does great documentaries. And Bill Simmons was one of the producers. I like Bill Simmons. I like his writing, actually. His podcast is a little dull. He's good. He's good. But Andre the Giant, they talk about his upbringing, you know, gigantism, his family in France, how he makes a name for himself, not just in Europe, but of course, even in Japan and in America, and how he becomes a big name, and Vince McMahon turns him into a villain. And then the sad ending, the very sad death, and then his little stint as a movie actor as well. So you learn all about him. Two things stood out. Number one, holy shit, was he an alcoholic. And he drank to heal his pain, but they said at least six bottles of wine and 70 beers every night after his matches. I'll say that again. At least six bottles of wine and about, yeah, 70 beers would go into the giant just to ease the pain. And everyone thought he was a party animal, but really, that's not partying. That's not partying. That's just slow suicide when you drink like that. And the other part that I actually didn't feel was necessary was they do a good five minutes on his farts. You know, a documentary where everybody remembers a certain part of the guy and they interview all of these people including Hulk Hogan, who just talk about his thunderous, enormous, wretched farts. Oh yeah, he used to lift a leg. I was like, maybe edit that out, because I didn't know the angle. Like, you could talk about him glowingly, you could even talk about some of the bad things, but really, we're going to do a part of this documentary that just focus on the guy's farts? He still has a family. He has a daughter. 
Whoever put this documentary together, I'm not sure we needed that. Because it was barely funny. I thought it would be a little funny, and then I realized, oh, this is a true flatulence issue. Like Andre the Giant, you know, these farts that they're describing in the documentary, they were off-putting, to say the least. Which I guess all farts can be described as off-putting. Great word, by the way. Off-putting. I need to use that more. But if we're grading things, kind of like that theme on this podcast, let's give Andre the Giant's documentary a big, fat A. Not an A+, because I didn't think we needed all the fart talk. Who am I all of a sudden to not love fart talk? My God, have I changed. My God, am I becoming an adult. All right, I finished the Sebastian Maniscalco book. Very good. If you don't know that name, please, I'm begging you. If you listen to this podcast, just do yourself a favor. Watch a Sebastian Maniscalco special. There's no other comedian today who's that physical and that great at just observing the things in society that bug us. And I know Seinfeld is a great observer of the little things that are ridiculous, that irritate him. And actually, Sebastian and Seinfeld are now good buddies. But just watch his specials. He taps into so many things where you just nod the whole time. You go, exactly. Exactly. And he tells his story in the book about his Italian family in Chicago. And it's all about eating as well. And it's about his hard work ethic. But it's interesting. It's not your classic story of, you know, he played the little clubs in his hometown. He moved straight to L.A. with a dream and actually made it. Think about how many people don't. But his path to making it is great. I don't want to give away anything if you're reading the book. But if you've never seen his comedy, he's like a cartoon. He probably burns 600 calories every set. The guy just sweats right through his shirt. So he gives the crowd every ounce of energy that he has. I love comics like that who think, eh, maybe they're seeing me for the first time tonight. They never know who's in the crowd, so they're going to give it their all every night. He's that type of guy. Gives it his all. Really good. And because I have no depth when it comes to the books I read, I'm not reading the classics, let's just say. I'm not reading sci-fi, as you can imagine. I just read either true stories about sports or comedy. I'm very limited in my scope, as you can imagine. So I just ordered... Todd Berry's book, Thank You for Coming to Hattiesburg, One Comedian's Tour of the Not-Quite-Biggest Cities in the World. And if you don't know Todd Berry, he's probably like this five-foot-four New Yorker bald guy who's so bright, very dry, sarcastic delivery, but he's just put together a book of his essays of life on the road. I like that type of stuff. And he also includes, you know, a travelogue, places he ate, people he met. It's good. So one of the forewords, he has two forewords in this book, is written by Jesse Eisenberg. This all connects to sports. I feel like I'm going to have one sports take per podcast. So this is my hot sports take. All right, buckle up, baby. Jesse Eisenberg wrote the foreword. He's from The Social Network. He played Mark Zuckerberg. You know who Jesse Eisenberg is. He was in Adventureland, a very forgettable movie filmed at Kennywood in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and a few other movies. So Jesse Eisenberg, who always speaks in a matter-of-fact tone when he acts, everything he says is very deliberate. He was talking about Todd Berry, which is what a foreword is. You got to talk about the person who wrote it and how much you love them. But he mentioned something about the Golden State Warriors. Who knew? Jesse Eisenberg is a Warriors fan. So he talks about combining things that he loves. You know, it sounds like it should always work, right? Like when George Costanza wanted to combine pastrami sandwich and sex, and he thought it would be great. So Jesse Eisenberg... He says, my friend Lee got a treadmill in his apartment. I love running on treadmills, and I love hanging out with my friend Lee. Another perfect union at the center of my personal Venn diagram. Jesse Eisenberg goes on to write, but sometimes this marriage does not work out so well. For the last several years, I have loved watching the scrappy Golden State Warriors basketball team. 
During this time, I also loved watching the elegant Kevin Durant, who played for the Oklahoma City Thunder. But this summer, Durant joined the Warriors, and they became that horrible, elitist Goliath that so often ruins competitive sports. They became too much of something good. The double-stuffed Oreo, the menage a trois, the 30-minute shower. I'll stop there. So true. I've wondered and wondered and wondered why I have transformed where I used to be such a Warriors fanatic, like I said, it would keep me up at night to think about their team, to think about the coaching decisions, to think about the draft, to think about the trades, to think about free agency. Just thinking about the Warriors consumed a large percentage of my brain. And now, I don't exactly care. I know it sounds crazy. The playoffs just started. I don't care as much. And I know when you grow up, your priorities change, you know. You have a baby, that matters. You have a job, that matters. You have a wife, that matters. The world matters. But I still want sports to matter. So I was kind of at a loss. I was a little confused. Where did my love for these warriors go? But Jesse Eisenberg completely summed it up. It's the double-stuffed Oreo. It's too much of something good. When it was just Draymond, Clay, Steph, it was great. It was almost organic. It came together naturally. Bob Myers, this brilliant general manager, putting together this puzzle perfectly. And then they add Durant, and you go, oh, now it's too easy. Now they're just going to win championship after championship. Not one, not two, not three. But I love the way Jesse put it. It's too much of something good. I don't need that. I think deep down, most sports fans would agree. You don't want your team to win the championship every single year. Sounds crazy, but you don't. Part of being a sports fan is complaining. The whining is part of the fun, which is why Sports Talk Radio is a big seller. Or in some cities, Sports Talk Radio is great because they open up the phone lines and they let a bunch of people just vent. But if your team wins the championship every single year and you have all the best players in the year, and you purchase Kevin Durant, and you have the supporting cast. I'm not complaining. It's nice to see dominance, but geez, it's so foreign to me. And then there's this other aspect with the Warriors that they're moving to San Francisco, and I don't like that. I don't like seeing Oakland get shafted. You know, nobody goes to A's games. The Raiders, they're moving to Vegas, and the Warriors are moving to San Francisco, and Oakland still has a lot of draws. You know, Jack London Square is nice. Lake Merritt is nice. There's a bunch of nice restaurants in Oakland, but really, let's be honest, whoever took a vacation to Oakland? San Francisco is where people go. When they visit the Bay Area, people go to SF. And seeing Oakland just get shit on by the Warriors' ownership saying, yeah, we don't want them there. We want to put them in the city for the texters and the hipsters to enjoy. What kind of fan base are they going to cultivate when they get to the city? You know, the worst seat in the house will probably be 400 bucks. The best seat in the house, I don't even want to talk about. But who are, who's going to sit in those seats? It's going to be the kids that traveled to the Bay Area for the tech jobs and have enough money to sit in those seats, but do they truly care? I'm that bitter guy who doesn't have the money to sit front row, so I have to talk shit about the people that are sitting front row like, they're not the best fans, I'm the best fan, and I sit on my couch and I watch them. So maybe the bitterness is growing. But all that being said, I'm excited for the playoffs. I'm excited to watch a lot of the teams, not just the Warriors, but there's so much good talent right now. The athleticism is so ridiculous, the court is too small. I think there was once a Nike commercial or a Gatorade commercial about just how the dimensions of the court need to change. It's true. These are the same dimensions that slow white guys from the 1950s were playing on when George Mikan dominated. George Mikan couldn't play in the league today. We've evolved. We've evolved. Everything about the game of basketball has evolved except for the dimensions. So the court's too small. The wingspans are bigger. The vertical leaps are bigger. I think the court needs to grow a little bit. little MTV rock and jock. Let's grow this motherfucker. But yeah, the Todd Berry book, pretty good so far. Laugh out loud. I can't say that for a lot of these comedians' books. 
And that's my genre of choice. Any comedian that has written a book, a tell-all, a memoir, a biography, I've read it. I've read it. I just go on Amazon. I, I search and search and search. I've read it. And I'm running out. That's how often I read these books by comedians. I'm running out. I'm down to Todd Berry, but it's so good so far. So here's the part of the show where I kind of allude to me having a worry, a health worry, but it's really nothing to worry about. Why I saw the doctor? Don't ask questions. But the doctor had to tell me, you need more fruits and vegetables in your diet, and don't bring the cell phone into the bathroom, and also, drink more water. I said, how much? He says, about eight 12-ounce glasses of water. Who's drinking that much water? I have to change my ways. I have to be the guy who now carries a water bottle around, which I know sounds normal to a lot of people, but that's just one more thing. You know, for a guy who loved the days where you didn't carry anything, I remember as a kid, if I had cash, I would just put it in my sock. No keys. I would always have hiding places for things. No wallet, no cell phone. I love the days where you just left your home. Nothing. You didn't have to pad your pockets to see what you had in your pockets. Now I have to be water bottle guy, which is a big decision. What kind of water bottle? Water bottle says a lot about you. Do I do a mason jar? That looks cool. Do I do an old canteen? That looks rugged. Do I do the ones where they have the plastic straw? Maybe. Tin? Tin looks hip. Or I'd maybe just use the same Dasani empty water bottle, which I heard was not good for you. I didn't know that. I think for three years, I once kept an empty Crystal Geyser water bottle stashed at the radio station I worked at. And before my shows, I would just fill it until one of the producers said, you realize you're killing yourself. So if you're doing that out there, this is my message for you all. If you're just refilling a plastic water bottle for years... Uh, that's bad for you. That'll kill you. I don't really know why. Maybe slowly you're drinking the plastic, but I thought it was fine. This is a long way of saying I need to drink more water, and I think I'll have some right now. <sighs> All right, folks, I have a theory. Here we go. God erases the memories of parents after three months. Once again, I'm going to bring up God. There's a higher power. All right, this just became the religious here-we-go edition. So God or any higher power you believe in, any mystical creature you believe in, erases the memories that parents have in the first three months of their baby, so they will eventually forget about all the torture and do it again. This is why people have more than one kid. If they vividly remembered the first three months, there's no way, no way anybody would have more than one kid. No, absolutely not. But I think God erases memories. I firmly believe this. This is actually creating my belief in God because I think God played a role in wiring human brains. It's so hard. The first three months, child rearing, bringing a baby into the world, that there's something about the memories that are erased. And I know this for a fact because when I talk to other parents and I bring up this type of stuff, they go, oh, yeah, it's hard. You know, very dismissive tone. They go, oh, yeah, not getting any sleep. But I think they actually forget the level of torture that is going on. I really do. And there's no topic more controversial on planet Earth than bringing up parenting methods, ideas, styles with other people. Because you can't be preachy about it. You can't tell anybody else, you know, this is what you should do. You know, when it comes to breastfeeding or formula or how to dress them or how to read to them or how they should sleep, how to, how to, how to, how to, how to. There's no topic that'll create more controversy than telling somebody else, here's how it should be done. You almost have to tiptoe around this topic. It's almost like talking about politics. You go, uh-oh, where are we going? Are there conservative people in the room, moderates in the room, liberals in the room? This is combustible. Even your best group of friends 
You start talking about parenting, you'll start to hear things where you go, oh, they're telling us to do this. Well, we don't do that. Well, we tried to do that, but it didn't work. Oh, it didn't work? Then try this. Everybody wants to feed you so much advice, so you have to tiptoe around the topic. And you got to know who to seek the advice from, who to trust. What if they're too aggressive with the advice? So you just got to take a step back and realize this topic maybe shouldn't be discussed at social settings. Maybe not. Not to say I've had any bad experiences with it, but I've just noticed everybody does it their own way. And it's okay. But it could become problematic when you start telling other people, yeah, maybe you should try this. Maybe you should do this. Then you go, oh, fuck you. You kidding me? Answer man. You kidding me, Jeeves? You got all the answers? But yeah, our baby daughter's about four and a half months right now, which means it is now sane to think about having another. I mean, not anytime soon, but for a while there you go, okay, this will be an only child. We're done. Never again. This is too hard. And I'm the guy. Are you kidding me? The women do the heavy lifting. I've never felt more indebted in my life. Watching what the women do when it comes to the first few months of bringing a baby into the world, forget about it. Makes you wonder where gender inequality came from. And if anything, you know, not to just sound like such a feminist, which I am, because I think that just means you believe that females should be empowered and equal. But how the fuck did gender inequality ever begin? How did we ever look at women and say, yeah, probably shouldn't give them the right to vote? Yeah, should probably pay them less in the workplace. Isn't that wild to think about? Historically, when you think about gender inequality, I know you could go back to the early days of hunters and gatherers, but really the role of women in society, it's so damn important, you almost wonder how it's not the opposite, where they're dominating societies, and then the men didn't have the right to vote, or the men maybe didn't make all the money that women were making in the workplace. All right, this got deep. Holy shit, did this get deep. I'm going to undeepen it in a moment. Anybody still watching Silicon Valley, by the way, without T.J. Miller? It's still pretty good. It's on tonight. And that show educates me. Because you remember, I can't really understand anything technological, but I can understand a comedy show about it. So Silicon Valley's pretty good. With Gilfoyle and Dinesh, that's a hell of a comedy team. That's the best comedy team since Kenny Powers and Steve Janowski, for all of you Eastbound and Down fans. But I'm just looking at this tech revolution. It's going on right now. It's in our face. Daily. Actually, every second of our lives, this tech revolution has consumed us. I'm just a part of it. I'm one of the sheep. But I did recently think about how it's going to be studied, how it's going to be viewed. Because history is interesting. Whenever you teach history, which I do, or you learn about history, you always learn about it in a condensed way. You know, we teach the Renaissance in world history. It takes a couple of weeks. But the Renaissance lasted hundreds of years. But we talk about it like a finite period of time. You know, late 1300s, into the 1400s, through the 1500s, even into the 1600s. And usually you teach the kids about the artists, the Medici family, you know, the Pope's role. But the main city, the hub, is Florence, Italy. When you start teaching about, you know, the beautiful art and sculptors of the Renaissance. But it just sounds like, you know, a period in time to people who learn about it. So now that we're living in this tech revolution, and this will absolutely be in history books one day, I was thinking... How's it going to be taught? Will Silicon Valley sound like Florence, Italy in about 200 years? Take a look at history books, if books even exist. But you know what I mean. 200 years from now, in history books, when they teach about the tech revolution, what is the Bay Area going to sound like to people studying this in other states and other countries when they start talking about Silicon Valley, California? Cupertino, Palo Alto, all these little towns. 
I actually think it will sound like Florence, Italy. People are going to say, wow, that's where Google started. Wow. Oh, Facebook, the origins of Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and Spotify and Snapchat and Instagram. All these companies are condensed into this area. But when's the beginning? You know, in the Renaissance, you talk about the Medici family and the power of their banks, how they were able to commission the big artists to come from all around to paint and sculpt Leonardo, Da Vinci, Botticelli, Lippi, Donatello, Michelangelo, all the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, but not Splinter. I don't think Splinter was a part of the Renaissance. Oh, the great Francisco Splinter. Not sure what accent that was, but when you go to Florence, Italy, you get to see it all and you try to appreciate it. Okay, I should say you just appreciate it. I should stop projecting my own experience. I try to appreciate the beautiful art of Florence, Italy. One day, many years from now, people are going to come to these little Silicon Valley towns on tour guides, and that's where Mark Zuckerberg, right there in Los Altos, had the Facebook headquarters. And look over there, that's where Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak created the first Apple computer in 1976 in Cupertino. So to me now, it's kind of fascinating, but nothing that I love to think about. I don't love thinking about Silicon Valley every day, but when you think about its impact, now this is a pretty small area of the world. Think about its impact on the entire world. Think about all of these apps, these endless apps on your smartphone created by these young, brilliant, intelligent, hip texters who are currently living in the Bay Area making a lot of money and sitting in the front row at Warriors games. Think about it. Keep thinking about it. As I lose my train of thought, keep thinking about it so I could try to find that thought. Oh yeah, they've impacted the world to the point where if you walked through any high school campus, any college campus, heads are down, earbuds are in. We are now detached. Not saying we don't communicate, we just communicate differently. And I know I keep making this point, but I think I'm going to try to fight it. Why no pushback? This is my last point. Why no pushback? Why are we all just accepting this? You look back at the Industrial Revolution, which was a big revolution. Took a long time. The origins in Britain. Here come new factories and new machines to make weaving easier. And all these things so much easier. Here come the canals. Here come steam engines. It's the Industrial Revolution. Here come stores. Urbanization. It's all coming there were people who pushed back. The Luddites, people who said, fuck that. I don't want machines. I like handmade goods. I like to sew my own pants. Where are these people? I don't know any of the people pushing back on tech. It's in our brains. We're all now programmed. We're the robots. And to raise children in this generation, it's a little scary. I honestly was out to dinner the other night and I saw eight-year-olds with smartphones all huddled around the smartphone. It was a beautiful sunny night, and to their credit, they were still playing hide-and-go-seat and bugging everybody, but still, they all had cell phones. That glow of the cell phone lighting up their faces. How poetic. It's actually an awful image. It makes me just yearn for my childhood. Oh, mud football in the park. Mud football in the park without parents hovering. If you want to call them and tell them when you'll come home, you call them collect on a payphone. 1-800-COLLECT. Will you receive a call from Josh? Pick up, pick up. That reference fell flat for anybody that doesn't remember the payphone days of calling your parents collect. And finally, I realized I should stop acting like my generation is this romantic generation. Oh, the 80s. Everybody likes their generation. That's what I realized. Somebody that was born in the 1920s, they lived all the way until the early 2000s. 
They probably said, I'm so happy I lived when I lived. That's a positive mindset. Sometimes I even go, ugh, the 1600s. Who would have wanted to live back then? They were probably fine with it. They weren't suffering. It's all they knew. But because I live now and I have memories before this tech revolution, and it sounds like I miss those days, which I guess I do, I still don't think that the kids who are now born into the tech revolution, and it's all they know, are suffering in any way. It's just all they know. Every generation is probably fine with when they were born. Is that a good point or not? I don't even know. All right, I'm done. It's time for a dog walk with the world's worst canine. Absolutely the worst dog on planet Earth. And I know that's a discussion that a lot of people could have with me and say, no, my dog's the worst. Hell no. I will win this topic. Every podcast, I could give you a story about how horrible this dog is. And I've been doing it for 12 years. But sometimes he finds a little area under a bench where I can't reach him and he eats a full sandwich. There's a lot of people littering sandwiches or burritos and I can't grab them. It happened this morning at El Harache Loco on my morning dog walk. I couldn't get under the little white bench and he found a plate of enchiladas, ate them all. And by the time he emerged, he knew he was in trouble for that vicious beating I was going to plant on him in front of everybody enjoying their coffees, their Americanos. There's the guy in his beanie and his sunglasses who looks like a hobo with his beagle, just ready to beat his dog, to beat his dog. But I never actually get to the beating. I always think I'm going to, you know, I start gritting my teeth and going, here we go. I'm going to fight him like a man, but I always ease up, but still I grab him by the collar and I rush him up the hill back home and I don't talk to him for a full 15 minutes. That's the punishment. All right, folks, let's end this podcast with a few deep breaths. I want you to center yourself, get in touch with yourself, guided mindful meditation. That's the next step for me. Breathe in and out. And as you breathe, I want you to just focus on your thoughts and your feelings. That's episode 12. It is now in the books. I'll talk to you soon. Click like. <laughs>